course, last time we were in chapter 9, so we were making our way through the plagues that the Lord has laid on Egypt because of Pharaoh's obstinance uh, in refusing to comply with or to uh, obey the commands of the Lord. And, and the uh, plagues that we saw last time, um, that the, the uh, livestock would would all of a sudden become diseased and, and pretty much the major livestock that is the wealth of the Egyptian economy and a food supply and beasts of burden, uh, they all were afflicted with this and they lost much, if not most, or all of their, of their cattle as a result. And of course, Pharaoh uh, still does not relent. And so the next plague that came the sixth plague, boils were inflicted on people all over their bodies. Now, in each case, for example, with the cattle, the cattle of God's people, not affected, not affected whatsoever. Equally, with the plague of the boils, uh, God's people, not affected whatsoever, but these were excruciatingly painful and aff- afflicted pretty much everybody from the top down in Egypt. And... Um, we see there in verse 11 of chapter 9, the magicians, these are the sort of the individuals that are around the throne of, of Pharaoh. They could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. And by the time, by the way, they got to uh, the third plague, which was lice, the magicians couldn't keep up anymore. They couldn't go toe-to-toe with what uh, Moses and Aaron were bringing. And then the seventh plague rolls around, and this becomes hail, the likes of which they have never seen in Egypt, the kind of hail that is so destructive that it was literally breaking trees and destroying crops and uh, probably did damage to homes. And this becomes something that the people in the country now are, are realizing that it is, it, it is God Almighty who's inflicting them and it is, the affliction is coming because of the, the uh, posture that their own king, Pharaoh, is taking before God. And uh, in verse 24 of chapter 9, we saw there, so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Hail and fire, you think? I mean, goodness. And we see at the uh, end of the, of the hail plague, In verse 27 of chapter 9, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Wow, you would think this is a major breakthrough. Uh, Pharaoh is coming around. But of course, the Lord knows the hearts of all people. Um, Pharaoh says, entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. See, this is the point all along is to get through to Pharaoh who he's dealing with. And you would think, goodness gracious, after the Nile River is turned into blood, after every cattle in the country is afflicted and killed, you'd think the message would get across, but... People who are determined to be wicked uh, can, can hold on to that wickedness in spite of overwhelming evidence. 
And uh, we, we reread there in verse 30 of chapter 9, Moses saying, But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not fear the Lord God. It's interesting that Moses agreed to entreat the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh at Pharaoh's request. But he says straight up, but I know that your repentance is worldly repentance. It's not godly repentance. It's worldly repentance. That is to say, not that I'm sorry I offended God. It's that I'm sorry I'm in this mess. A worldly repentance often when we sin is not, I'm sorry, God, that I offended you. It's I'm sorry I got caught. And that's quite a bit different than the kind of repentance scripture calls for. And so the Lord knows, and therefore Moses knows, that what Pharaoh is telling him about, he's a sinner, his people have sinned, they're sorry, they know it's not true. But again, uh, we read in verse 34 that he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So not only did Pharaoh harden his heart, But the servants of Pharaoh, the men and and perhaps women, but men that were around Pharaoh were now of the same heart place as Pharaoh. It's like, well, this so-called God of the Hebrews is not going to overcome us. And so they too become hardened in their hearts. And so we wheel into chapter 10 and we read there, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now it's interesting that in those first couple of verses we're reading that the Lord is sending Moses to go back to Pharaoh because he's going to bring to Pharaoh yet another announcement of plague Notice the reasons that are given there. First of all, this is the continuing pattern that the Lord is pursuing to impress upon Pharaoh and his servants that they are dealing with the Lord God. And we've already gone through a couple of these different deities that the Lord, Egyptian deities that the Lord is poking in the eye. And we'll do that again in a moment here. But but there's a second purpose that for, for which he's doing this. He says there in verse 2, speaking to Moses, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt. You see, the Lord gives testimony through the ways in which he interacts with humanity. There's many ways in which God interacts with humanity. Um, he, he's done it through the prophets. He's done it through the things that are made. His invisible attributes plainly seen in the things that are made. So he leaves us without excuse. He's done it through his son. He's done it through his word of God. And one of the things, I've said this many times, one of the things that the word of God serves as, it's, it's documentation of history. And just as the Lord is saying to both Moses and Pharaoh, Take note of what I'm doing in the midst of the Egyptians because this becomes a testimony that I am telling you, you need to pass on. You need to tell your children. And guess what? When the Lord gathers his people Israel and he's sending them towards the land in Deuteronomy chapter 6, between verses 4 and 7, this is what the Lord commands through Moses to the children of Israel. Hear, O Israel, this is verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. What the Lord is simply saying to us, to the children of Israel, but to us as well, is that the things that he has done, which are recorded right here, this is why it pains me so much, that Christians of modern day don't read the Old Testament, they think it's irrelevant. These are the testimonies that the Lord has given us, just as he gave to Egypt, just as he's given to the uh, people of Israel, and he gives to everybody who names the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior. These are the, I don't even want to call them stories, these are the historic accounts that we are to bring to our children and our children's children. I'm now a grandfather. I, I believe that I, Michelle and I have been faithful to bring this to our children. Now we have the opportunity to bring it to our grandchildren. They need to know. They need to pass that on because the things that are recorded in Scripture are very intentional by the Holy Spirit to have happened and to have been recorded and to have been transmitted to modern times so that we are never left with a generation who does not know the power, the might, the glory, the grace, the mercy, the love of God. And, uh, you know, we fight against... Um, we, we think we're fighting against flesh and blood, but we know it's spiritual wickedness in high places that seeks to stamp this out. This has been stamped out in many countries. Uh, this is one of the cool things about sometimes ministering to people, for example, from China. Because the communist government of the 1940s and, and rolling forward was so successful in stamping out any knowledge of the Bible, when we encounter Chinese people now, very often they're a blank slate. They're very curious. They don't have preconceived notions about the Bible because it was wiped out knowledge of it was kind of wiped out in their country and so there are chinese people that come through international friends ministry uh, through other ways in which we meet folks and you start to talk to them about the bible and you get this look on their face and, and and feedback from them that never heard that before never heard that god loves me i've never heard that the son of god died for me if he's the son of god how could he die and all of a sudden, you've got like this open door to share the, the centerpiece of the gospel. And so we need to be diligent to do just what the Lord commanded the children of Israel. He's here in our text. He's commanding Moses. He's, he's bringing these plagues one after another after another to get the message through to the, um, to the Egyptians. And we know that it will be like hundreds of years into the future... And the Philistines, who are getting ready to do battle with Israel, hear this ruckus go up in the camp of Israel because the Ark of the Covenant has come into the camp. And they're kind of shaken in their boots. Now, the, the story doesn't end well for the Israelites in that particular case. This is found in 1 Samuel. But, um, but nevertheless, um, the Philistines, in talking among themselves, say, ooh, these are the people whose gods, now they got it wrong when they said gods, but they say these are the people whose gods brought all those plagues upon Egypt. See, they still, hundreds of years later, they knew what God had done. And, and this is why God does these majestic, major movements among human beings is to make it unmistakable that he is indeed the Lord God. 
Verse 3 of our text. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Now that is the heart of the matter. Okay, It is Pharaoh's pride that is causing all of this disaster, really. I mean, the, the country of Egypt is being decimated from every conceivable anger, angle. Water supply affected, crops affected, livestock affected, uh, human comfort, lice, flies, boils. I mean, come on. Uh, and, and it's all because of one man's prize. Wait a minute, I'm Pharaoh. You know, amongst my people, I'm deity. I don't have to kowtow to some other deity. Who is the Lord that I should pay attention to him? Which was what he said back in chapter 5. So he says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Now, just stopping there for a moment, and we won't go down this rabbit hole as much as I would love to. I urge you to go and read up on locusts. This is one of those phenomenons in our world. You, you almost can't make it up. The, the way in which, because locusts and grasshoppers are not all that different, but something happens to these creatures uh, and, and there's all kinds of theories of what actually brings on the swarming. They actually call it getting into gregarious mode. How about that? It's like people who've had too much to drink at a cocktail party. They get very gregarious. Well, all of a sudden, these, these creatures, they start to uh, come together. They start to breed like rabbits. They start to um, swarm. And then they start to move. They move as a unit. I mean, it's, it's uncanny. There are certain insects, we know bees are that, these social kind of animals, uh, bees, ants, whatnot. They have this social connection with one another where they, they just kind of move as a single thing. And you can see the kind of devastation that locusts have brought to places in Africa and the Middle East. I mean, the, the damage is utter. It's utter. I mean, they eat everything in, in their path, like, like a, a, I think they said a two-kilometer size uh, swarm of locusts would include something like 40 million locusts, and they would eat the equivalent of food of 35,000 people, you know. And, and what we're seeing here is a swarm of lo- locusts, the likes of which no one has ever seen. Verse 5, they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth and they shall eat the residue of what's left, which remains to you from the hail. Now, there's a reference back to the the last plague of hail. The hail was so devastating. I'm sure it broke down all stalks of grain and broke down all kinds of plants. It broke down literal trees. Hail, fire, thunder, all happening at once. So there was a lot of devastation But what the Lord is telling them is the locusts are going to come and clean up the mess. I mean, they're going to basically take everything away. He says there at the end of verse 5, And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And then Moses turns and went out from Pharaoh. Now get this, verse 7, Pharaoh's servant said to him, 
how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. In other words, let the Israelites go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? You see, uh, I think we've seen in recent days how uh, people who govern can sometimes lose touch with what's going on with their people. These people are suffering. You know, these plagues didn't just all happen at the palace. This is happening throughout the nation of Israel. I mean, of Egypt. And, And understand that in those days, Egypt was a very fertile, productive, rich nation. And now virtually every quarter of their economy, every person in every village and town has experienced these plagues. The people are hurting. They are fed up. And the servants now, maybe they are one and the same as the servants we saw up in verse 34 of chapter 9, who we read, hardened their hearts. Well, they're singing a different tune now. They're saying, okay, enough is enough. Uh, They probably knew enough about locusts to know the kind of damage that they can bring. And they can hang around a long time. So verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones going? Now, Pharaoh here is trying to make this a negotiation, okay? It's like, okay, go, but hold on a second now. Who exactly is going? See, because Pharaoh still has in his mind that, number one, there are slaves, and we will not be told what to do by slaves. Number two, our economy depends on that labor force. And so we can't just let it walk away. Um, We can't do that. So he asks who's going. And verse 9, Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. So so Moses is basically telling them, um, we're all going. Everybody. The little ones, the wives, the grandmas, the grandpas, everybody. And so here's Pharaoh's response, verse 10. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. So what what Pharaoh is telling him here, and it's it's the way it's stated is just a little bit confusing, but what he's saying is, Oh, you think you're all gonna go? Well, that ain't gonna happen. You men can go, but Pharaoh's intent is that women and children stay back as a ransom. In other words, I need a guarantee that you're coming back. And this is an instance where Pharaoh is trying to do something that people like us often do. We, we, We would like to give in to the Lord, but not completely submit and we we get into a bargain with god okay god here's here's my best offer i will go this far i will do that thing you're asking for but this thing over here or what what i do over there or this sacrifice that might come down the road that's not on the table but i'll go this far I'll, i'll go a little bit towards where you want me to be And we have to understand that God never bargains with us. 
God doesn't have to bargain with us. God never has to sell an idea to us. God never has to compromise because he's God Almighty. And the only way we could ever have that expectation is if we thought we were dealing somehow with God on a peer level, on a peer basis. You know, you give a little, I'll give a little, and we'll see what happens in the middle. Now, what happens in the middle is a trap door straight to hell. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have any, uh, if we were talking about a court of law, we would say you have no standing before the court of the Lord. It's like, here is, here is God's will, do it. That's it. And, and uh, you know, Pharaoh is trying to, um, well, he tried this back in ver- uh, chapter 8, uh, verses 25 and 6. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, go sacrifice your God in the land. And Moses said, it's not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord. Pharaoh had tried to compromise with him, say, okay, I'm not going to let you leave Egypt, but I'll let you sacrifice to the Lord here. Moses said, "Mm, no, I don't think so. We're not going to do it in this defiled abomination of a land uh, amongst people who hate our God. Um, No, we're going to go where the Lord leads us to go. And we're going to take everybody. Well, Pharaoh tries yet again in saying, okay, you men can go. But the, the children and the women, they need to stay here. And of course, they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence because Moses rightly refused to capitulate to the compromise. He, he refused to say, okay, well, you know, we got, Lord, we did our best, but this is what we came back with. Mm, that wouldn't cut it. That wouldn't cut it. So we've already talked a little bit about how each of these plagues has poked at uh, the false deities of the Egyptians uh, all around this statement that, that Pharaoh made in Exodus Chapter 5, verse 2, when he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Obviously, Pharaoh is saying that from a a self-righteous position of, well, I'm Pharaoh, so I'm pretty much God myself. And our pantheon of gods um, serves us quite well. But what the Lord has done here has shown that he is greater than their God known as Snum, who we talked about earlier, who is the guardian of the Nile. He turned that Nile into blood. He's greater than the god Hapi, the spirit of the Nile. He's greater than the god Osiris, who had the Nile in his bloodstream, according to their their, uh, mythology. He's greater than the god Heket, that's the frog goddess of fertility. He showed them what lots of Hekets would be like, running around in their homes, in their kneading bowls and ovens and He's greater than the goddess Hathor, who's the godlike, the cow-like god, kind of their mother goddess. Greater than the god Imhotep, the god of their healing and medicine. Greater than Nut, the sky goddess. All of these different deities had a connection to what the Lord was bringing in the way of plagues. And he even stopped their ability to worship as the Egyptians would because they had, similar to the way in which the Lord called uh, the Jews to worship before him, there was all kinds of cleansing rituals that had to take place first before they could worship their gods and goddesses. And with uh, lice and flies and boils crawling all over them, uh, why they couldn't even worship their gods. And so 
the Lord is now bringing this, this eighth plague. And we read in verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And by the way, that's very much the way they come upon a place. They, they, they can fly for long distances, and they have the innate uh, ability to know how to catch uh, wind currents and, and uh, jet stream and all that, and they can move re- relatively rapidly into an area and mass, and that's obviously what's going on. And the locust, verse 14, went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees nor on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. You can only imagine how long it would take for a land that's been stripped that bare to regenerate, to, to, to begin to be flowering again and have leaves budding again and have crops growing again. Verse 16, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Yeah, we've heard that before. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Um, So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the children of Israel go. Now, again, we, we've revisited this notion many times. The Lord is not making it such that a willing Pharaoh who would like to obey God is kept from obeying because the Lord hardened his heart. We've talked about this uh, the last couple of lessons. What the Lord is doing is he is confirming the position that Pharaoh is determined to take. In other words, he is not showing Pharaoh the mercy of continuing to allow the Spirit of God to convict him of sin, and just, uh, sin righteousness, and judgment. As we know, that is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world at large. The Lord kind of removes that influence and leaves a person where they desired and were determined to be. Now, the ninth plague rolls in at verse 21. And as I mentioned, I think it was last week or the week before last, the plagues, the, the first nine plagues come in groupings of three. And the first two plagues in each grouping of three, the first and second, the fourth and fifth, and now the seventh and eighth, those all were preceded by uh, Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh and saying, uh, the Lord would like you to let his people go. And if not, this judgment is going to come. But on the third of each grouping of three, there's no forewarning. It just happens. And this being the ninth plague, this just happens. We read in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Now, the fact that there's darkness over the land 
would be, again, a direct affront to one of their most important deities, the deity known as Ra, who is the sun god. And, of course, in Egypt, they get an awful lot of sun. And, you know, sun enables their crops to grow and all that. Um, and because it's such a prominent aspect of their, uh, their ecology, they, they worship the sun god, as many peoples of history have. And now, all of a sudden, it appears that Ray, Ra has been shut down. But the, 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 the point that grabs your attention here is what we read there at the end of verse 21. Darkness which may be felt. I believe that the reason that darkness may be felt is the same reason that people who ultimately are banished to the lake of fire and are even in the place before they go to the lake of fire, the abyss, uh, for people who are ultimately going to experience that judgment, they're experiencing a darkness that may be felt because it is, it is a sensation of the absence of the influence of God on them. The worst sinners that live on the planet Earth right now do have an influence upon them by the Holy Spirit. We, John, John's gospel tells us that to the world at large, the Holy Spirit is there to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, obviously, there's a great deal of wicked people in the world who, who have shut that down, who have uh, stiff-armed the Lord in any attempt that the Lord would make uh, on, on rehabilitating them or transforming their lives. But, but that, that influence is there. I believe that when you talk about a darkness that may be felt, what you're feeling what they were feeling is the absence of the mercy of God there for the taking. The, the absence of God's influence. Light is not only a physical property, it is an aspect of God's character. This is a theme that runs cover to cover in the Bible. And one of the great places you find this is in 1 John 1, 5. Um, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. God can withdraw his presence from his influence from people in such a way that the darkness they experience is profound. And equally, when the Lord has filled a place with his spirit, has filled a place with people who are vessels of his spirit. The light of the Lord is present there in abundance. We know that this was God's design for the church. Jesus had proclaimed that he is the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Light in scripture always is associated with holiness and with truth. And Jesus is the embodiment of holiness and of truth. But as he's preparing to leave or as he's teaching, uh, this was in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. He's looking at the masses of people that are in front of him and he's, he's speaking directly to those that ultimately would receive him as Lord and Savior. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. That verse is right on the wall outside there in the fellowship hall. That was a founding verse of our church. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father in heaven. We are part of the light of the Lord. We are conduits. We're like fiber optic cable from the throne of God that the Lord's light, he desires that it be conveyed to the world and we're that conduit. We're, we're that light of the world that brings the holiness of God and the truth of God into the presence of human beings. I think the darkness that can be felt that's described there in verse 21 of our text is the absence of God's influence on a sinful people who have been determined to reject him. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Now that would, that would seem to suggest that they couldn't even see each other with artificial light, like a, a, a lamp, a, a candle, uh, or even a fire. Because it says they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones go with you. Now he's trying another, another tack. It's like, okay, okay, take the women and children, but keep the flocks here. I love Moses' answer. Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve our, the Lord our God. And even we do not know what we must serve the Lord, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. So Moses is is actually suggesting the possibility that, hey, maybe what the Lord will require when we sacrifice to him is to take all of our flocks. And we, we can't take the chance that we go with, with something less than that in case the Lord would demand of us all that we have. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. And so now we have set up here what is the ultimate uh, sanction that the Lord brings upon these people. And uh, all of this has been done for reasons that we've seen. Um, just to rehearse those again, number one, to show the power of God through Moses. Exodus 9.16 told us that. Uh, two, to give a testimony to the children of Israel for future generations. We just saw that in the second verse of chapter 10. Number three, to judge false gods, which are really demons of the Egyptians. And you'll see that in, uh, when we get to chapter 12, verse 12. The Lord will say, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. See, the Lord is not only showing himself to the Egyptians, but he is showing himself vastly superior to any deity that they might uh, embrace. Um, fourth reason, to warn nations. And we see that more than 400 years later, the Philistines will remember that the Lord God brought judgment upon the Egyptians. 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us that. And then finally, um, as a testimony of the greatness of God to Israel. So um, now we come into chapter 11 and the Lord is going to inform Moses 
He's going to actually remind Moses because as we'll see, he already mentioned this to Moses at the very beginning of this, uh, this adventure. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So now it's not, hey, Pharaoh is going to decide to let you go. Pharaoh is going to kick you out. He is going to drive you out of here. Now, there's, there's at least one veiled reason why that's a good thing from the Lord's standpoint. The Lord knows that, there were, that as the children of Israel make their way through the wilderness, some of them will grumble about how difficult the journey is and will fantasize about going back to Egypt. But what the Lord is doing, because the Lord is never just working on one thing, he's making sure that the door will be slammed in their face when he ultimately removes them from the land. Now get this in verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now, This is ironic because uh, we know that they are showered with gold and silver. They are showered with wealth. In fact, much of that wealth ultimately will be the raw materials for the building of the tabernacle, according to the prescription, the, the parts list that the Lord will give them. But it really constitutes, you might say, back wages for the Israelites for the the years that they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And... um, They know that Moses, now they know who Moses is. He's got a profile on the land that has the eyes and the attention of the people. And they view him as a great and powerful man, which because he is a man of God, he is all of that and more. And uh, the interesting thing about verse two is the Lord had already told Moses that this very thing was going to happen. In fact, when the Lord told it to him, He may have just kind of sloughed it off because it didn't piece together with why would the Egyptians want to load us up with wealth? Uh, We're working as slaves for them now. But in Exodus chapter 3, when we were back there in verses 21 and 2, we read this. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. See, he told them that before there was any visits with Pharaoh, let my people go, if not, this bad thing's going to happen. None of that had happened yet. The Lord is, is preparing Moses and Aaron to go to be his ambassadors before Pharaoh to plead for his people to be let go. And he said, that. oh, by the way, uh, one little detail about how this is all going to come together. Um, You're going to get enriched by the very people who've imprisoned you for 400 years. And and here we see it. Uh, Then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive. 
every station of person in Egypt and their animals will suffer this particular plague. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as has not been like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. In other words, there will not even be a dog barking at the children of Israel as, as a, a kind of a, a shouting back at them being the reason for all this going down. Against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptian and Israel. Imagine the impression this makes, all of this has made on God's people Israel. They know from way back in their history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these three men, all were spoken to directly by God. God had made promises to them. We're living under those promises. We're not feeling so great about living in those promises because we're not enjoying any great land. We're not enjoying any prosperity. We are slaves in a foreign land. But now they've seen how God is standing with them and advocating and fighting for them through each one of these uh, judgments. And now this is going to be the final thing where the firstborn of all of the Egyptians is going to be taken. None of their firstborn will be taken. And they're starting to get indoctrinated into the notion that indeed they are a special people and God does indeed love them and will protect them. Verse 8, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children go out of the land. So what, what we have here is the table is set now for this ultimate judgment to happen, and this will be the context in which the famous, most famous feast of all of the Jewish law will be birthed. And that is the Passover feast. And this will be the great foreshadowing of the coming perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I mentioned last time, and we'll just do this in a few minutes and, and then we'll be done, that the, the plagues that the Lord brought upon Egypt have a correlation with the judgments that you find in Revelation. And I thought I would just uh, run through these just real quickly with you. Um, the first plague in Egypt was blood. We saw that in chapter 7, turning water into blood. And we see in um, the seven bowl judgments of Revelation 16 that uh, rivers and springs will be turned into blood. So it's very similar judgment. And also the, uh, the third trumpet judgment, it's not blood, but a third of the fresh waters turn bitter by wormwood. So that's kind of a, in a similar effect of water being defiled in the case of the ten plagues or in the case of the seven bowl judgments. Um, it was actually blood. The third bowl is rivers and springs turned to blood. Uh, the second um, plague was frogs. That's my personal favorite. We saw that in Exodus chapter 8. And uh, we know that in... Um, in uh, the seven bowl judgments, the sixth judgment in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 16, the kings from the east are gathered to the Euphrates River by three unclean spirits resembling frogs. Don't ask me what the connection is there, but 
I just believe there is one. The Lord has a way of doing things like that. Um, the third, fourth, and fifth plagues of Egypt, the lice, the flies, the cattle disease, do, does not have a parallel in the judgments that we find in Revelation. But the sixth one, boils, which we saw as the plague uh, in chapter 9, the sixth plague, um, we see in the first of the seven bowl judgments that people that have the, the mark of the beast are afflicted with sores. So again, that same idea is used there. Uh, the seventh plague that we saw was hail in chapter 9 of, of uh, Exodus. And we will see in the seventh, seventh seven bowl judgments, uh, lightning, severe earthquake, and plague of large hail. So again, you got hail in chapter 9 of Exodus. You got hail in chapter 16 of uh, Revelation. And that's the seventh bowl judgment. Uh, the eighth, the locusts, uh, we saw that in chapter 10, the chapter we saw just a moment ago. And the, in the seven trumpet judgments, the fifth trumpet judgment, locusts, uh, locust-like creatures are released on earth after the abyss is opened. They're described like locusts, but they have a whole different sort of supernatural appearance to them. Um, the ninth plague, darkness, we saw that in chapter 10 that we just studied. The fifth bowl judgment that you read about in chapter 16 of Revelation also includes darkness on the earth and also sores breaking out. So there is commonality. The, the kinds of judgments that the Lord brings during the tribulation uh, have a lot of correlation to the judgments that were brought against Egypt. I personally believe that this is a marker that God has intentionally used for people going through the, the tribulation who may be knowledgeable about the word of God or may have the word of God now, may, may be drawn to the Lord, and they're seeing these things unfold. And I'm sure that the, the secularists and the scientists will be giving all kinds of um, reasons why these things are happening and maybe scientific or so-called scientific explanations for them. But people who have... Uh, the sense to look into the word of God, they're going to see that correlation. And this is going to be an affirmation for them that no, this is something that is being brought upon us by God. And that may lead them to read the book of Revelation and to read the other prophetic words and, and understand what they're going through and give their lives to Jesus Christ. So next time we will, uh, we will get into the um, 12th chapter of Exodus, which is going to really take us through the institution of the Passover. And of course, we know the significance of that particular feast because we just went through that period of time and uh, it has profound significance in foreshadowing Christ. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight, Lord. We thank you for this word. We thank you, God, for how faithfully you have recorded, preserved, and transmitted these accounts so that here we are thousands of years in the future able to learn from these things, able to see your glory, your might, and your majesty, knowing that we, we serve the same God that Moses and Aaron served. And Lord, that we don't have to go through those kinds of plagues to understand the sovereignty that you have over our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would ever be open to the leading of your Holy Spirit, that we would ever have our ear towards heaven to hear what you would will and want for us, Lord. 
And I pray that we would have the humility to obey as you call, Lord. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.